We have been walking through this series called Meeting with God over the last few weeks, and uh, um, it's been really good just to kind of walk through some of the different challenges that we face and have faced and do face and will face and are facing um, in the midst of our daily lives, and just how the Lord meets with us and how we meet with God, what God does in the midst of some of the challenges that we do face. This morning, we're talking about what it looks like to meet with God uh, in the midst of our suffering. And if there's ever one uh, who suffered in the context of the word, it's this man named Job. And I think many of you maybe have an idea of who Job was, even if it's just a small uh, idea of who Job was or what happened to Job. Um, But I'm going to take you through like the fastest version of the entire book of Job that you've ever been on. Are you ready for it? So like five minutes, all 40 whatever chapters of the book of Job. Here we go. You ready? So there was a man in the land of Uz, great name, right? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Chapter one, we start out seeing this man, Job, and we see how God, listen, how God identifies Job, right? God points Job out, and he says this of Job. He says, Job is a man who was blameless and upright, totally devoted to God, and he hated evil with a passion. This is who God says Job is, right? And it's crazy how if you read through the book of Job, especially these first two chapters, this is who God outlines this to, okay? God is not outlining this to his angels. God is not outlining this to Job's kids. God is outlining this to who? To the devil, right? He points to the devil. He says, he he looks at the devil. He's having this conversation with the evil one, and he says, "Uh, have you noticed my friend Job? This is who Job is, right? This is who Job is. This is what he's about. And there's this test that then uh, goes on with Job's life, right, where God says to Satan, have you noticed Job, this blameless, upright man, totally devoted to God, hated evil with a passion? Have you noticed him, Satan? And Satan says, yeah, I've noticed him. And the only reason he worships you is for this reason, right? So God gives him permission to go and test Job in all of this test, though Job does not sin. Chapter 2, we see that God and Satan have this little conversation again. And God says, yeah, I've noticed him. Yeah, I know he didn't sin the last time, but the only reason he didn't sin is because you didn't actually touch his body. You just touched all of his stuff. God says, okay, go and, uh, um, go and test Job again, right? Satan goes and he tests Job again, and everything, every, every, everything and everybody around Job in this moment is pressing Job into sin. Even his own wife is pressing Job into sin. Remember what his wife says to him? Job's wife says to Job, he says, comes to this point in Job's life where she says to him, just curse God and die, Job. To Job's response, chapter 2, to Job's response, wife, are we to take the good days from God and not also the bad, right? This is just the nature of we're just going to receive all of these things from God, knowing that all of these things somehow, Job says, somehow we're going to receive all of these things knowing that somehow they are for our good. This is chapter 2. And then chapter 3 to 31, this debate ensues. You see how we cover this in five minutes, right? We just lump 30 chapters together. Chapters 3 to 31, this debate ensues between Job and his friends. Confrontation, pride, arrogance, lies. This debate ensues in, in, in this 
back and forth, back and forth, this constant back and forth between Job and his friends, between Job and God, this this constant back and forth. Chapter 32, there's this uh, little-known character that then speaks up called Elihu. Elihu speaks up for six chapters, and if you notice in, in chapter 37 that at the end of chapter 37, when Elihu is done speaking... And he's a very interesting character if you go back and read it because he, uh, he even says of himself, he goes, I'm just a young man. I have been, um, I was completely, like, I, I'm taken back by you men of great stature and great wisdom and great wealth and great everything. And I'm completely taken back by you. And I've been waiting until now to speak. And I'm so disgusted that now I'm going to speak. Chapter 32, he starts to speak through chapter 37. And it's interesting, at the, at the end of chapter 37, there is no rebuttal towards Elihu. Nobody says anything to him, God nor Job. It's just all of a sudden in chapter 38, after Elihu starts speaking, chapter 38, and then God starts speaking, right? God starts speaking in chapter 38. God speaks and tells Job and his friends and everyone around him, tells all, tells them all of his majesty, tells of all of his might, tells of uh, God, tells Job of his history, the creation of the world, the foundations of the earth, He tells Job of his history and his provision throughout history. Who are you? Where were you? Who are you? Where were you? God just speaks all of these things to Job in chapter 40. God then looks at Job and he says, now what do you, after I've said all of these things to you, what do you have to say for yourself? You know what Job's response to that is? I shouldn't have spoken. I'm really sorry. I should not have said a word. My bad. He says, I I shouldn't have opened my mouth. I'll shut up and I'll listen now, right? I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to listen. And even when Job says that, what does the Lord do? He doesn't let him off the hook. He goes on, right? He says, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And God says, okay, you're right. Now let me give you some more. Now let me tell you more about who I am and what I've done. This goes on and on. And chapter 42 kind of concludes like this, where Job repents And then God looks at Job's friends and says, y'all, y'all have been in the wrong for this whole time, right? This is the only way that you're going to receive forgiveness is if Job intercedes on your behalf, if if Job prays for you and intercedes on your behalf, right? And so they make amends. Job intercedes on the behalf of his friends. And all of this, God ultimately then restores, in chapter 42, God ultimately then restores Job His family, not restores his family, but gives him more, gives him another family, gives him more stuff. God restores everything that Job had lost, right, in all of this. However, in all of this story, right, and again, this is the five-minute version, okay, in all of this story, we see and we, in a lot of ways, we can't even begin to fathom or feel the pain and the depth of hurt and suffering and tragedy that Job felt and lived into suffering, hurt, pain, defeat. Listen, it's a real thing in this world. And even though we can't understand the totality of Job's pain and suffering and hurt, each and every one of us in some capacity or facet knows suffering, don't we? Whether it's the loss of a loved one, whether it's the loss of an ability, even, listen, even if it's the loss of a job, we know suffering, okay? We know suffering. Uh, Going through different grief courses and things like that and how to help people grieve, you know how they define loss? Uh, People, grief counselors define loss as anything that you have lost, 
anything. Therefore, suffering could be anything that causes you or has caused you pain, anything, right? So in some capacity or facet, all of us have dealt with suffering and deal with suffering. There's this reality that suffering of any type, there's the reality in suffering that suffering of any type that unless, here's what's crazy with, with us in suffering, that unless a remedy for our suffering is immediate, unless it does it immediately remedy our suffering, then it must be faulty. It's not working. Isn't that right? Unless, the, unless, unless this immediately alleviates my suffering, then it's flawed. Think about when you have a cold or allergies or any ache or pain uh, that you have ever had, arthritis. Uh, we see it all over the packaging of these items, right? But we see things like this, immediate relief, right? We see things like it targets tough pain fast, right? And we even walk through the pain aisle in the pharmacy looking for those words, extra strength, extreme relief, fast relief now. We see these words all over these labels and we are quick to grab those things. And if it doesn't work, and if it doesn't work quickly, then obviously it's flawed and it's faulty or I need more. But here's the thing, the nature of any of these remedies is temporary though, right? Because if you turn the bottle around and you read the back of it, if you read the back of the bottle, here's what the back of the bottle says. It says something like this. It says, take every four to six hours, i.e. temporary relief. Or it says other things like this, if you keep going down, it says, stop taking if pain persists for more than two days <laughs> and go see a doctor. Duh. Okay, these, these, these remedies that we seek out and long after, listen, they're, they're all temporary by nature, right? There is, this, there is this sanctifying factor in suffering that we enjoy bypassing, isn't there? This hurts. So how do I get away from it? There's a sanctifying factor in suffering that we enjoy bypassing. In other words, there is so much, uh, there is so much to learn in our suffering that when we bypass it, we forego large amounts of sanctification, large amounts of learning and knowing who God is and what God is more about. For the last several years, I have been working through uh, some physical pain of my own in my Achilles tendon. I enjoy running. And one of the things that you need uh, to run or even to walk or move is an Achilles tendon, right? So I enjoy running, I, but at the, for the last several years, I've, I've, I've been working through this. And yes, as I said, last several years, <laughs> it's been a long suffering, right? For the last several years, I've been working through this. And here's what I've come to find out. I've, what I've come to find out over the last several years is that there's actually nothing wrong with my Achilles tendon, right? What's wrong is the nature of my knees and the strength of my hips and my posture. And because my posture and my hips and my knees are out of alignment and weak, the weakest link then is my Achilles, and that's the thing that struggles and stresses and hurts the most, right? There's nothing wrong with the actual thing. What's wrong is the chain here, right? But what I want is what? What I want is immediate relief for this one spot, and I want to completely bypass and forego what it would look like to remedy the entire situation and just fix this thing so I can get on with my life, 
just fix this thing so I can get on with my life, so I can move forward, right? Is, is this not what we do? I have this pain in my shoulders. I have this pain in my knee. Um, just fix that one thing. I have this pain, listen, in my marriage. I have this pain with my kids. I have this pain in my soul with you, Lord. And instead of starting to chop at roots of things, what do we do? We just look at the one thing and say, how can we get rid of that one little thing right there? We start picking at leaves. We start picking at leaves rather than chopping at roots, don't we? This is what happens. However, in the simple and the quick, oftentimes very detrimental alleviation of pain, we forego this opportunity to fix things that have been silently screaming the entire time. This is what we do. We pick leaves instead of chop at roots. Perhaps God sends the suffering not necessarily to, punishment, to punish us for our sins, but to keep us from sinning and to restore us as well. Maybe this is why God sends suffering into our lives. To actually make us holy. To actually cause us to rely on him. To actually teach us things that we could not learn about ourselves unless the suffering existed. Right? I did not know. <laughs> I had no idea that I had bad posture. And that my posture, whether it's sitting or standing, could go all the way down into my feet. I had no idea that I had weak and unflexible hips until all of a sudden it gets revealed, right? Perhaps God sends a little bit of suffering into our lives to reveal places and areas of our lives that need, that have been silently screaming this entire time, right? That have been silently screaming this entire time. So what does any of this have to do with the presence of God? Let's just ask ourselves the two simple questions that we've been asking ourselves for the last several weeks. First one is this. What does God do in the midst of our suffering? Hopefully you can answer this question on your own by now. What does God do in the midst of our suffering? In the midst of our suffering, God provides. In the midst of all the pain, all the hurt, all the tragedy that goes on in our lives. In the midst of all of our suffering, God provides, right? Without the, without the presence of God, the provision of God would be completely impossible, right? This is what God does. What, what does God do in the midst of our suffering? Uh, he provides, okay? We, he provides because he is present, he provides because he's present, right? Uh, without the presence of God, the provision of God would be impossible. Friends, this, this is the God. Go back and read through Job. This is the gospel. That in the midst of our suffering, God provides, right? This is the gospel that God provides in the midst of our suffering and a, a substitute Savior. This is the conclusion of Job's story. The conclusion of Job's story is this. It's not that Job was proven righteous and thus blessed with more than he had before. The conclusion of Job's story is the gospel. The conclusion of Job's story is this, that, that we thought we had it really good before. That we thought we had it really good before. Enter in a little bit of hurt, pain, suffering. And the Lord clarifies and sanctifies that much more. That we thought we had it really good before, but God intervened and God proved that he had more on the other side than we could ever ask or imagine on the other side of our sufferings. Whether that's personal holiness, whether that's the holiness of other people, ultimately, 
ultimately heaven. So what is our response to these things? What is our response to the presence and provision of God in the midst of our suffering? It's very simply this. It's communion. It is remembering and reminding ourselves of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior on the cross. This is our response to suffering. It's remembering the suffering of Christ, the atonement of Christ. This is what we do. We remember, we respond by remembering and recognizing Jesus who was delivered up for our sake to atone for our sin. 1 Corinthians, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He goes on to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let each person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks with, without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So here's what we're going to do this morning. You've got these little juice cups at home. You've got your, uh, hopefully you've got your, your bread or your cracker and your juice as well. This morning, we're going to take some time just to sit as a family. Pray, you and your spouse. And if you don't have someone here with you this morning, you can walk across the aisle and find someone who is within the context of the family of God. Pray together. Pray together. And participate in communion together this morning on your own. So let me pray for you. We're going to pray together. And as we sing this last song, participate in communion with your family together. Let's pray. Father, in the midst of our suffering, we know you're near. In the midst of all of our pain, God, today we recognize that you've not left us. Father, that you have not forsaken us. Father, in the midst of our suffering, we recognize this morning, God, that you, that you provide. Oh, God, that you provide. God, ultimately, we recognize that the provision that you provide is Jesus, our Christ, and our King, our Redeemer, our, our Redeemer and our Savior. This is what you provide. Atonement for sin, life. Father, this morning, we remember the blood that was shed on our behalf to atone for our sin 
and your body that was given over for us as well, God. Father, this morning as a church across the city, we remember and we respond by participating in communion together. Father, remind us this morning as we pray and as we participate, remind us this morning of your presence and your provision in the midst of our suffering, God, we pray. Amen.